Welcome to the Redemption Church Podcast, located in Seattle, Washington. As a church, we are a community striving to be faithfully present to God, self, and others. We hope this is an encouragement to you in your life, no matter where you are. Thanks for joining us. Scripture this morning, Mark 1, 43 through 45 and 2, 1 through 12. Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Instead, he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. Yet the people still came to him from everywhere. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. So many gathered there, so many gathered that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus, and after digging through it, lowered the mat and the paralyzed man was lying and the mat that the paralyzed man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there, thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts, and he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up, take your mat, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take up your mat, and go home. He got up, took up his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. The sermon is called Trade. Mark 1, 43 to 2, verse 12, chapter 2, verse 12. Last week, we covered the very beginning of this passage has to do with Jesus cleanses a man with leprosy. And now we pick up. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go and show yourselves to the priests, offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. Okay, here we go. The first thing Jesus tells the leper that has been cleansed, don't tell anybody. In fact, it says sternly charged him or warned him. Uh, The word is literally like he rebukes him. Like Jesus is very, it's intense. He sternly charges this man, like, kind of grabs him by the collar saying like, listen to me, man, this is very serious what I want you to do, which is a strange thing. Don't go tell anybody what I just did for you. Isn't that kind of the whole point of the whole gospel? Like go into the world and, you know, Jesus says, don't tell anybody. And he warns him saying, don't do this. Go off your, you know, what Moses prescribes for us to do in the law and so the question becomes, well, why? Why not go tell your family? I mean, to remember, if, if you were a leper in the first century, you lived in a leper colony. 
You would have been completely removed from society, lived in quarantine completely. There's no more birthday parties. There's no more anniversaries. There's no more hanging out with friends anymore. It's over for you. You live a life of seclusion entirely. The, the disease itself robs you physically, it robs you socially, and it robs you spiritually. I mean, after all, Moses had some things to say about leprosy, and it even removed you from the religious community itself. So why can't he go tell anybody that Jesus just cleansed him? Well, first, Jesus didn't come to break the law of Moses. He came to fulfill it. That's why he says, go do what Moses says. And so if you go back and you look around in like Deuteronomy chapter 12, 13, 14, it's this giant kind of dermatology you know, manual on what to do with those who contract the disease of leprosy. And if you happen to be cleansed of leprosy, uh, there, were, there was a whole lot of protocol to follow. Lots of sacrifices, lots of prayers to be offered, lots of rituals that, would, that the priest has to then check you out and then go, okay, now you are allowed to go back. So first, Jesus doesn't break the law. He says, obey it. Uh, the second thing is, is a little is strange is that Jesus is um, he's kind of a paradox throughout the Gospel of Mark in particular. Like he'll do a miracle like this one and then say, now don't tell anybody. And he's holding his identity back in a way because Jesus knows that the moment that word gets out that this man has the power to literally touch lepers and restore them completely, it's going to get out of control. He's going to be bombarded completely. And it's important to note that the people would actually end up seeking Jesus out, not to become disciples, not to become obedient to his way of life and all the rest. They'd seek him out for food and miracles and maybe a great teaching, which is what the crowds tend to do. And so this is one way in which Mark challenges us immediately to go, what do I relate to Jesus for? Like, why do I go to Jesus actually? Like, why do I approach him? Do I approach him for him to fix something in my life or do I want to follow him as a disciple? And to be quite honest, uh, I found myself really convicted reading and studying and writing this week, thinking about this. Like, Jesus, fix my marriage. Jesus, fix this financial problem. Jesus, fix this thing in the world. I want you to fix this thing. But I'm not actually that interested in obeying you, you know? Like, I'm not actually interested in a life of self-denial. Is anybody? Disciples are, but crowds are not. So, and there's, by the way, <laughs> there's nothing wrong for praying for miracles, healing, cleansing, uh, provision, all that. Like, if you read the end of the book, it's amazing. Like, all of God's people, there's no more death, no sin, no disease. The roads are made of gold. It's going to be great. It's going to be unbelievable. So, it's not that God's anti-blessing. It's just God wants us to chase the king of the kingdom rather than just the streets of, of, of gold, you know. So, why do I go to Jesus? And then the man goes out, and of course, he becomes disobedient. <laughs> he went out and began to talk freely about it and spread the news so that Jesus can no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. So the man couldn't take it. Like, Jesus says, you're cleansed. Go show yourself to the priest. And he's like, ah, I'm not doing that. I mean, 
from Capernaum to Jerusalem. You're, you're over 100 miles away. The man's not walking down to Jerusalem to find the priest. He just runs straight to his friends, his family. His social life is coming back. He's doing what you and I would do. Had you been robbed by leprosy? Like, I'm sorry, I... I gotta go see my friends. I can't take it. This is unbelievable. That's what this guy does. And he begins to spread the news. And so it's, it's like disobedient evangelism <laughs> or disobedient missionary work. He's going out and doing what seems to be a good thing, telling people about Jesus, but he's not following Jesus' instructions. Like, Jesus was teaching him to steward a miracle. You know, like, we talk a lot in church about, like, stewarding our pain, to use Frederick Buechner's language. We steward our pain, this grief that comes into our life. We don't want to become dominated by our pain or compare our pain to somebody else or ignore our pain. And that's important. But the twin virtue is to steward a miracle, too, you know. Sometimes good things come into your life, and it's not time to tell everybody. Jesus is teaching him to steward something. And that's very hard. Like we can spread really good news. But when it's not our time or place to share the news, it can actually end up ruining a moment. Like if you find out like a coworker is getting a raise and your boss says, no, don't tell him because there's other things I got to do between now and then. And you go down the hall and tell the coworker, hey, you're getting a raise. That actually ends up breaking trust with the boss. That there's a way to spread news in a way that betrays the moment. So Jesus says, steward this. And look at the outcome of the man's disobedience because he was so excited. Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. So the man with leprosy went from living alone in quarantine to now able to go anywhere he wants in the city. And Jesus went from being a man in the city to having to live completely alone. Jesus trades places with the leper. Suddenly Jesus went from a place, or from, from being a nobody, ever hearing of him, to being the most famous person in the world. Now we begin Mark chapter 2. That only took 10 weeks. <laughs> All right. Mark chapter 2, one of my favorite uh, Markan scholars, his name's Ben Witherington. This is what he, he, he titles this section. From chapter 2, verse 1, all the way to 3, verse 6, the title of this section could be called, Jesus Meets His Critics. <laughs> Maybe you've read the gospel and you know where all this is going. It's because Jesus challenges everyone's social, cultural, theological norms, he teaches with authority, not like the scribes. The things he says and does are unconventional. They appear completely upside down. And his work is the work of God. And so he faces a lot of criticism. Or to use our current vernacular, he's, he's canceled. <laughs> and as human beings, we often criticize what we don't understand. We cut people down. We dehumanize them. We make fun of them because we don't understand them. 
especially people that like challenge us. And so if you're going to follow this man, Jesus, you too will undoubtedly be criticized at various points of your life. You will. Maybe you've been on the internet lately. I don't know. But it's because Jesus does not belong to the Republican Party. He doesn't. And he doesn't belong to the Democratic Party. He doesn't belong to the Libertarians. Maybe. Um, um, just kidding. Just kidding. But if you're to share Jesus' position on when life begins, you will be criticized. If you share Jesus' position on sex and sexuality, you will be criticized. You will. If you share Jesus' position on justice, you will be criticized. If you share Jesus' position on grace and compassion, and who do we have to forgive in this world? You'll be criticized. If you share Jesus' opinion on truth, Seattle has an opinion for you, right? So if you walk with Jesus, there will be hardship. Why? Jesus' younger brother James later would write, friendship with the world is enmity with God. Like we can't be friends with this world in such a way that we can also simultaneously be friends with God. We just, we just can't. And that doesn't mean be rude, arrogant, unkind, pick fights, cancel people, and you know. But it does mean that if we're going to follow him, we will stand out. We just will. But you don't stand alone. You just stand out. And so the ways in which you'll see Jesus through the rest of this book handle his opponents is just remarkable. You see him like appealing to scripture. And rather than getting in fights with people, I mean, he, he goes toe-to-toe with people. But the way he goes toe-to-toe with people is he just asks better questions. So as people come at him, they'll go, oh, I got a question for you real quick. <laughs> and it's always this neutralizing, like, oh, I guess the conversation's over. And while this isn't the point of the text today, I, just pastorally, I've been reflecting on one particular passage in the Gospel of Mark that I think would be helpful today for us. You, you know the story of the rich young ruler? It's in Mark's Gospel. This young wealthy guy, top 40 under 40 guy or whatever, shows up before Jesus and asks him very plainly, what do I have to do to go to heaven? How do I inherit eternal life? And Jesus just says, oh, well, you know, obey Moses. And he's like, well, I, I do that. Like, are you sure? <laughs> you sure that's all there is to it? Like his conscience is like, there's no way. There's no way this is it. And Mark says that Jesus looked at him and loved him. That Jesus' body language, the way his physical demeanor, he looks at this man and the man knew Whatever Jesus is about to say next comes from a posture of love. So Jesus looks at him, loves him, and says, here's what I want you to do. Go sell all your stuff. Collect all your cash. Go give it to the poor. You come follow me. You'll have eternal life. And it says, and the man hung his head in sorrow and walked away. The man left not because he was bullied or shamed, 
or canceled. He left not because Jesus filled him with sadness. He left because his money had filled him with sadness. And he just didn't believe that Jesus would just be enough. When I think about cancel culture and all that we're seeing constantly online, I'd encourage you to pray before you post. And maybe just give some thought to people that you disagree with. Maybe take one moment and find a way to communicate your love for that person. And then present your position, your truth. Wait, wait, your truth. I didn't mean it that way. You know what I mean. (laughs) Stop. This is hard. (laughs) But, But then present the truth of the gospel. To do it from a posture of love. Because you don't want to just win arguments. You want to win people, don't you? Like you can be right. And you can win that fight. But you're still sleeping on the couch, buddy. (laughs) You know? Okay, just me then. All right. I'm just kidding. (laughs) All right. So when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. So remember, Capernaum's in the northwest. He lives off the corner of the lake. It's a a thriving community. It was located on a trade route. There's roughly 600 to 1,200 people that live in this region. It was a fishing village. Um, uh, Yeah, big on wine, big on grapes, big on olives. That's kind of what was going on. You're like, yeah, the kind of the things you traditionally think of if you think, what goes on in Israel? It was that. Fishing, wine, grapes. So that's where Jesus was hanging out. It was a conventional, uh, it was a strategic trade route for him to post up and do a lot of his ministry. And so, uh, but there's only 1,200 people max that live there. And uh, the houses there weren't particularly large. The maximum uh, house was, could hold about 50 people total standing like, I mean, smashed in there together. The largest, you know, house that was excavated is about... 18 feet. I mean, it's like you'd be packed in pretty tight. So Jesus is at home, and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to them. Now, when Mark uses the word many, (laughs) it's like a big thing. Like when he feeds 5,000, Mark's like, there were many people following Jesus. Like that's 5,000 families. You need a bigger word than many. But anyway, so there's many people at this house. And the crowds are smashed in there. And to our surprise, when we find crowds in the Gospel of Mark, they're never celebrated. It's never a good thing. Crowds are always the ones that we said a moment ago, they want a meal, they want a miracle, they obstruct Jesus' ministry, they get in the way. Um, crowds, Crowds are the ones that bail quickly. Like the moment Jesus says a hard teaching, crowds are the ones that always leave, remember? And then Jesus looks at the disciples, lest you eat my flesh and drink my blood. All the crowds leave, and then Jesus looks at the disciples, and they're, they've got that look on their face like, hey, that was, <laughs> that was insane that you said that. And he's like, well, do you want to go too? So there's the door. Like, crowds bail, but disciples, and that's one of Mark's themes, is he's calling people to discipleship, not just to be in the crowd. And it says they were there at the house and Jesus was preaching the word to them. And so when Mark uses that language, preaching the word, 
We don't actually get Jesus' sermon notes. Uh, but we do know that the content and his character are, are one and the same. One of my favorite theologians, James Edwards, he's actually out at Whitworth in Spokane. Uh, he, he, he said this about this verse. I love this. The truth he, that Jesus, the truth that he proclaims is the same truth that he embodies before which his hearers cannot remain passive. The word exacts of his hearers a response of faithfulness that can only be rendered to Jesus himself. I just love that. The truth he proclaims is what he embodies. Like, Jesus doesn't attempt to be godly. like us he is God and this is what the church needs now more than ever men and women who will not sit back and passively just listen to sermons week by week while we just watch our city rot or or people walk away from Jesus as though it's not that big of a deal The gospel demands, as James Edwards says, a response of faithfulness. That's exactly at the heart of even the vision of our own church. We're responding to God and the gospel through remaining faithfully present to God, to ourselves, and to each other. I'm in a small group this summer with a handful of dudes, and we're reading a book called The Men We Need. It's a book on masculinity, and no, it's not one of those, those books, um, and it's really good, and you dudes should read it because it's very funny, and it's very easy to read. All right, so but this is one thing on a passive culture that we live in. <laughs> he says this, nobody admires a passive man. People don't buy movie tickets to watch men without a mission. There's no whatever man hero in the Marvel Universe. (laughs) Passive man is a disappointment at best and a threat at worst. The good news is, is you can make a decision right now to be different. Don't be passive man or his underperforming superhero fellow blaming guy. (laughs) Nobody respects him either. (laughs) The idea is that the passivity in which we live in a society of right now isn't serving any of us well at all. We've got to become people of deep-rooted conviction. Amen. I kind of felt like no one was going to say amen to that one, but that's cool. All right. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men, and they could not get near him because of the crowd. Maybe the people just wouldn't move. I don't know. But they removed the roof above him, and when they had made an opening... They let down on the bed which the paralytic lay. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. This is the first mention of the word faith in the gospel. And here's why that's significant. Faith is not likened to a deeply informed, robust system of doctrine. Faith is also not likened 
to emotional-ism. The very first mention of faith in the gospel is a physical demonstration. Mark wants to make this abundantly clear that when the Bible talks about faith, it's not just concerned with getting your doctrine right. Though doctrine is essential, yes. And Mark's not saying it's not about feelings and emotions. That's also part of real life. Don't hear that being diminished either. But the very first time we hear about faith, it's being physically demonstrated. And this would have made sense to Jewish hearers. For them to think about faith, it wasn't just a thing you do in your mind. And gosh, I feel like that is so much of what we've gotten so much of in the Western church often. It is a constant intellectual exercise. And it's so important, like I said, to have good doctrine, to read, to think, to be able to articulate why you believe what you believe and to come to deep-rooted biblical conviction. Yes and amen. But if we stop short here, we're missing so much of the life that Christ has called us to. So throughout the Old Testament, I'll just read a couple passages if that's okay. Amos says, I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. Take away from me the noise of your songs and the melody of your harps. I will not listen to them. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Did you hear that? I, I don't want your worship service. All you do is sing. Do something. <laughs> Do something. Practice justice. Practice your faith. Because all you're doing is singing. And God loves singing. His biggest book in the Bible is all songs. But when it comes time for faith, it's going to have to take a lot more than lip service. Isaiah says the same thing in chapter 1. When you come to appear before me, who required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They've become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I'll hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Again, when Mark says he saw their faith, it was something that was being done. When the, the most famous pro you probably know is James and James chapter 2. What good is it, my brother, if someone says he has faith but doesn't have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed, lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace and be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. 
Like the people of God, whether it's the old covenant or the new, are constantly needing the prophets and the apostles and certainly Jesus himself to grab us and to shake us and go, hey, it can't just live in your head. Be the salt of the world, the salt of the earth. Be the light of the world in such a way that people see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. A faith that works is a faith that saves. And this is why we've integrated all of our ministries here at our church with serving Title I schools, refugees, unhoused neighbors, elderly, those people that keep getting pushed to the margins. This is where our faith is supposed to be working tangibly. Because we understand that the point of coming to church and reading our Bibles and praying and soaking all this stuff up is not for the purpose of just soaking it up and then just setting the sponge aside. It's to go outside the four walls of the church and be wrung out throughout the week. That's the point. Go and do. (laughs) But not in an effort to earn God's love. You already have it. You go and do because you're loved by God. And because your neighbor doesn't know they're loved by God yet. So, the roof has been removed, the man's lowered down, and Jesus could have avoided so much controversy had he just healed the man, like the guy with leprosy. If he had just healed the guy, he would have saved himself a lot of headache, a lot of pain. Because the next verse, the next thing that Jesus says will be the most important thing that he will say, and that's not an exaggeration, because there will be absolutely no going back after this sentence. Son, your sins are forgiven you. Well, he just overplayed his cards, didn't he? He's surrounded by a bunch of religious people, and Jesus did what only the high priest can do one time a year on Yom Kippur, after all the blood shed and the lambs have been sacrificed, that's the only time anyone could hear, son, your sins are forgiven. That's the only time, the only person that could say that would be in that context. You don't walk around with this incredible assurance, you know. And Jesus does it anyway. A hundred miles away from the temple, no blood has been shed yet, and says, son, which was, a, which was a way of saying, I care about you. I'm here to look after you. I'm here to meet your needs, and I'm here to guide you. I'm here to instruct you, son, your sins are forgiven. I don't know how long it's been since you've had somebody just look you in the face and just say, and your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven sins are forgiven. But when you receive communion today, our communion servers are going to say, the body of Christ was broken for you, and the blood of Christ was shed for you. It's the church's way of saying, son, daughter, man, woman, child, your sins are forgiven. What relief. So Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven. We don't know what the man had done in particular. 
but Jesus knew. And that was just too much for the scribes standing around. They were sitting there questioning in their hearts, saying, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? So they're outraged. And they start to think to themselves, this guy's blaspheming God. He can't do this. And of course, later in Mark's gospel, that's exactly what Jesus gets charged with, isn't it? Blasphemy. And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? <laughs> Which must have been so cringy, like a moment in the office or something where you're just like, gosh, I hope this scene comes to an end. I can't listen to Michael Scott any longer. You know, you're just like, oh. This moment of, I know what you're thinking. And so he asked them the question, only God can forgive sins and only God can truly know what someone's thinking or how we judge someone in our hearts. And so Jesus asked them, what's easier to say to the paralytic? Son, your sins are forgiven. Or to say, rise and take up your bed and walk. What's easier to say? Well, it's easier to say, I suppose, that your sins are forgiven. I mean, we don't see God standing around anywhere, so maybe it's easier to just be a blasphemer than cure paralysis. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And so he validates the fact that Jesus has the ability to forgive sins by doing what would have been even more impossible. Namely, raising a paralytic from the mat with his words. And he did it. <laughs> and he rose and immediately picked up his bed before them all. And they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we've never seen anything like this. All right, so... In conclusion, how do you get to the gospel from here? We're observing Jesus do good works and pronounce the forgiveness of sins. Well, remember we began, the gospel is about trading places. Jesus traded places with the leper. Jesus would go out and be condemned as unclean so that the leper could be made whole and be brought in. In a way, he also traded with the paralytic. Jesus would now have to duck and lay low because of the scribes who were going to plot to put him to death. And now the paralytic could stand on his own two feet and go about freely, holding his head high. And just as the paralytic was brought in, laying flat on his back, Jesus, too, would be laid flat on his back on Good Friday but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. God raised Jesus from the dead, forever canceling your debt before God. And so now you're clean. You can now stand. You can now walk 
in the presence of God without a drop of guilt or fear or shame. Why? Because Jesus, the Son of God, has made everything right between you and God, forever canceling the debt of sin that stood between the two of you. Son, daughter, your sins are forgiven. That's great news. Okay, that's all I got. That's page eight.